Hey, welcome. Hey, as people continue to grab a seat, turn to your neighbor and, and talk about, discuss among yourselves what you would do if Chris or if uh, Will Smith slapped you. Okay, go ahead. Talk about what, what you would do if Will Smith slapped you. How would you react? Obviously, since, you know, the Christians in the room, you, you, we'd have, you know, we'd have to turn the other cheek. That's what we'd have to do. If someone slaps you, you'd have to turn the other cheek. Hey, is anyone here Team Will? Any Team Wills out there? Seriously? Team Will? I mean... If you've, if you've watched any of those award shows, Chris Rock's, Chris Rock's joke on a scale of like one to 10 was maybe like a, th a three at it. Like, it was not that offensive. Clearly, this is why y'all are here tonight is to talk about Will Smith, Chris Rock. No, y'all are here because we're starting a love, sex, and dating series. Anyone excited for that? But what's... But what's sexier than this series? Finances. Anybody? Anybody just get excited about finances? This is, this is some good stuff. Well, we have the class for you next Sunday night in this classroom right over here. If you want to talk about 401ks, if you want to talk about budgets, if you want to talk about maybe even crypto, I don't know if we'll get there, but... If you want to talk about a Roth IRA, okay, this is the class for you. Be there next Sunday in this classroom from 5.45 to 6.45. Another class that we got, for those of y'all, if, uh, if any of y'all have ever struggled with this idea of what it looks like to share your faith or what it looks like to share the gospel, to, to evangelize. We wanna help you with that. We don't want you to, to be stuck not knowing what to say or how to say or what if it comes off offensive or what if, what if they don't believe. Or We wanna help you answer all those questions on, on what it looks like to share this good news that we talk about, this good news that we celebrate. So that's gonna be happening also in this classroom but on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. And so sign up for that one. Discover the good news. Uh, it'll be a great time. You wanna miss, don't want to miss that. And, and last but not least, we have Abby here to tell us about another opportunity that you can have. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi. Um, so hello, everyone. I am Abby. I'm part of Ratio Christi, which is an apologetics ministry on campus. Um, Basically, what we do is explore the evidence for our faith, and we discuss deep questions about our faith and the evidence for various things. So, um, we meet about once a week, or we meet once a week for about an hour, um, and some of the popular topics that we've um, covered before are, can you prove that God exists? 
What is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? How do we know with certainty that the right books were selected for the Bible? Why would a loving God allow people to go to hell? What about contradictions between the Bible and science? And has the church been a bad force in history? Um, So if you're interested in exploring those kinds of questions with us, those and many others, um, follow us on Instagram. It is R-C-U-A-R-K chapter. And um, also come see us at the table in the back on your way out. Um, If you give us your email or number or whatever, we can get you into the Slack group so you know when we're meeting. And follow us on Instagram. And yeah, I hope to see you there. Awesome. Give it up for Abby. Go, go check out their booth on, on your way out. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get to worship together tonight. So bow your heads. Father, we just thank you for tonight. Thanks for just a space to, to sing about this good news that, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, that we can pray that tonight wouldn't just be words on a screen or, or songs that we're used to seeing or just an old text that we read, but it would come to life, that it would penetrate our hearts, Lord, that we would truly believe the words that we hear and the words that we say and the words that we sing, Lord. So would you, would your presence just be with us tonight? Would we feel that and know that? And so we love you and pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Fellowship College, let's stand and praise the Lord together tonight.
we're gonna move into a time of prayer. And I know we've just come back from spring break and I don't know where y'all have been during spring break. I don't know what you guys have been through. And I don't know what you're carrying into this room tonight, but I know that each and every one of us here is carrying something. And I just want to let you know that we are in the presence of the Lord tonight. And I want you to be able to worship him freely and fully. And so right now we're just gonna take some time to surrender all those things to him. And what this prayer is gonna look like is I'm gonna read a prayer over y'all and you can be seated. Um, but I'll read a section of a prayer that will surrender something over to Christ. And then we're gonna take about 30, 40 seconds to surrender that thing over just in your heart personally, take some time with him and give that over to him. And then we're gonna sing a chorus after each section of that prayer. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you with our distractions. We ask that you remove them from us, replacing them with the peace and joy that your presence brings. Help us to be present in this moment, recognizing that we are in this place to worship you. Renew us. Oh Lord. to carry the weight of our futures instead of surrendering them over to you. 
take our worry from us and give us your peace. Renew us, O Lord. from our negative thoughts and help us to find peace in vulnerability and openness. Renew us, O Lord.
Amen. We serve a God who is faithful to forgive us of our sins and he welcomes us into his presence. And so let's worship him tonight for all that he's done and for all that he will continue to do for us. Let's sing this out together.
are so grateful. Lord, thanks for tonight. Thanks for an opportunity to come together and worship and to do that freely. Lord, that's a gift that I hope that none of us ever take for granted. Um, Lord, we are grateful that your grace is sufficient for us and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Therefore, we can boast all the more gladly in our weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon us. Would we rest in that tonight and every other night? Lord, we love and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, y'all can grab a seat. Good evening, Fellowship College. How are we? All right, decent enough. That's fine. We'll accept that. It's acceptable. Um, hope you had a good spring break, everybody, and everybody's back and, and, and had a good time, um, safe time. Uh, I'm Garland. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you uh, before the night is out. And uh, we're starting a new series here uh, in Fellowship College over these next few weeks. And I think it goes without saying that when we look out at our, at our culture, one of the things that is, that is prized, that is idolized, that is exalted more than almost anything else in our culture is the, the concept of, of love and falling in love and romance and sex and sexual expression and pleasure. And it's all over our culture, like we see it in all sorts of, any kind of show that is going to talk about almost anything, they have to weave together some kind of a romance narrative in that show. And we see this in all forms of shows, whether we're talking about offices or they're in like a doctor's office or the lawyers, whatever it is, they have to weave romance and sex into it. If you think about it, from a very young age, we are indoctrinated to think that falling in love and finding that perfect someone that completes you, that that's like the, the pinnacle of life. And we, we tell these narratives over and over and over again. Like even a movie that's with animals, like The Lion King, they have this, this extended scene with the song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight playing. It's kind of awkward when you're watching it. You don't know what's going on. You're like, why is this happening? And even our young kids are indoctrinated with this from an early age. It's why Shows like The Bachelor even still exist. Can we just admit, by the way, worst Bachelor ever? Are we in agreement on this? You, anybody disagree with that? Everybody's like, that guy was awesome. He's my hero. Anybody? All right, one of you. Yeah, you really like this guy? Okay. Uh, it's why, like, if, you're, if you say, I want to watch, I don't know, say a, you know, a, a drama set in early 19th century London. I wonder if that'll be a clean show or not for me. Now, some of, I've not seen the show. Uh, the other day I was in Puritan and I ran into some of you in the room and uh, I said, what are shows that like people are watching now that are like known for being overly sexualized? And this one was like a unanimous winner. Um, and here's what was weird. One of the girls that was sitting there at Puritan said, oh my gosh, like it's, it's, it's so bad, especially like season one, episode six. And I was like, Wow, we watched that one like six times, didn't we? We really know that episode because she really knew it was season one, episode six. We see this all over our culture. It's in, it's in our media. It's in our music. All, all the genres of music, they, they carry this, uh, this idolizing of romance and falling in love and, and sex and having sex and pleasure. And, and the, the narrative that our culture is painting for us, you would think that Romance and love and sexual expression and sexual identity and sex. It's like, it's this amazing picture that our culture is painting. 
I mean, it looks, so, it looks so desirable, and it looks so fulfilling, and it looks so rewarding. And for many of us, it drives, some of our, it drives a lot of our conversations, a lot of our time thinking. And then what gets even weirder and more difficult for us, especially if you're a Jesus follower in the room, is we then look at oftentimes how the church portrays sex, how the Christians portray romance, and it comes across a little bit like this. Like for Christians, oftentimes it's a just say no to sex. Sex is bad. Sex is terrible. Avoid it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it until you get married. Then have at it. Or we have these sayings like modest is hottest. When we really believe it, but then we go out to the culture, we're like, we kind of feel silly saying it. I have no idea who this poor girl is. All right. It's just a Google image. But I think for a lot of us, we think like, this is how Christians are supposed to kind of act and how they're supposed to dress. And we kind of dress kind of frumpy and we try to be overly modest. And then I don't know this book. This could be a great book. I've never heard of this. I never read it. But look at the title of this book. You can't read it. It's Hot, Holy, and Humorous, Sex in Marriage by God's Design. And it, like, I see a title like that. And I'm like, it just makes us as Jesus followers we look at the culture's narrative, and then we oftentimes look at how the church has portrayed this topic. And ours looks kind of sucky, and theirs looks kind of awesome. And it's no wonder that oftentimes we find ourselves pulled toward the culture's depiction of romance and sex and sexuality. Now, let me just push back on it for a moment. If you've not considered, maybe that's, maybe that's the, the vision you've you, you were taught by your church, sort of avoid it. All this is bad. Don't think about it. So one day, right before you get married, that, let, me, let me try to challenge the vision that the church and oftentimes Christians have, have portrayed, this vision that we've portrayed. Just, if you've ever considered it, page two of your Bible, Genesis chapter two, we have a man and a woman brought together for a marriage ceremony, naked, and then the man breaks out in song upon seeing his naked wife. That's page two of the Bible. As you continue reading, the Bible doesn't run away from this topic. In fact, right in the middle of your Old Testament, we're going to come across this little collection of ancient Hebrew poems. And I'll tell you, they would make somebody even living like in the major cities on the coast blush when reading them. And just to give you an example, I'll read them for you right now. Like, just hear some snapshots of Song of Songs. It's not for shock value, but we have to adjust our mental picture of what the Bible thinks about sex and romance and love. Right in the, right in the middle of, the, of your Bible, hear these words, Song of Songs. The man speaking to his bride, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs, he's working his way up, by the way. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. She keeps going from there. I'm going to try this on Sarah later. See how that goes. Uh, it's not going to go well for me. But it's, it's just sitting there, right? If you've ever read Song of Songs, you're like, what in the world do I do with this? I mean, it'll make, it'll make even the most like hardened atheist blush. Look at this. 
He calls to his bride, you were a garden locked up on the eve of their wedding, my sister, my bride. You were a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And her response on their consummation of their wedding is, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he responds, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. And some of you are like, we can't read this in church. What are we doing here? We're going to look at the Song of Songs. For the next four weeks, this is going to be our quest. We're going to try to reset our vision of what the Bible says about you know, dating and sex and romance and marriage and love and beauty and all of that. We're going to let this, this little eight-chapter collection of ancient Hebrew romance poetry be our guide. All right, That's where we're going for these next few weeks. And so it'll be, it'll be an adventure along with you guys. We're going to take this adventure together. If you've got friends that are asking some of these questions, bring them in, and we'll, we'd love to walk through this together. Now, it's always helpful. If you have your Bibles, by the way, go there, turn to Song of Songs. Uh, if you've, if you've, whenever you study a book of the Bible, it's always helpful to get your arms around the context of that book, like the background, what's going on, who wrote it, where'd they write it, what are they writing about? And we're going to take five minutes, all right? Five minutes, and we're going to do a little bit of introduction to the Song of Songs, because my bet is almost all of us in this room have no idea what's going on with this book. So let's do a, let's do a little bit of background, and then we'll dive into our, our, our context for tonight. It begins this way. Song, use, the, use the table of contents, by the way. No shame in that if you, if you can't find it. Uh, it's after Psalms and Proverbs in there. Um, it begins this way. The Song of Songs, which means it's the greatest song. It's the greatest collection of songs which is Solomon's, is how the NASB translates that. It, it prepositions, these little words that go, uh, like, that connect uh, words and sentences, phrases and sentences, are difficult in Hebrew. So it's either for Solomon or to Solomon or in the likeness of Solomon or by Solomon. We're actually not sure how to take the preposition in this particular case. And so it's probably not written by Solomon. After all, it'd be weird for Solomon to have this amazing poem dedicated to his one love, when we see he's got, you know, 700 wives and 1,000 concubines. It's probably not Solomon, uh, but it's written in the tradition of Solomon, we might say. So this is how the, the, song, the, the Song of Songs begins. And let's just get a couple pieces of background for you and I to notice in case you go read it. The first thing is this. You're going to see, and most translations bear this out for you. It'll say he or she or man or woman or something like that. There's three main speakers, and some see more, in the Song of Songs. There's the, there's the, there's the groom, there's the bride, and then there's the friends or the family or the chorus, and they're chiming along as well. So you got to notice that as you're reading it. They're talking back and forth to each other. The voices change. The second observation for you and I to know before we go and read it is this. The Song of Songs sounds a lot like other ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian romance and love poetry that we've unearthed and excavated and found. And so it, it, it sounds familiar. And so this is a genre that ancient people uh, were writing and the Hebrews were no different. And they collected these songs for a reason. It's a collection. It's a collection of individual poems or songs that form a greater unified whole. Now, none of us, unless you're like into records, almost none of us 
listen to like full albums anymore because of Spotify. We just listen to individual songs. But records are a collection of song, songs put together to tell a greater unified story. And some, some albums tell a very unified story. And that's what's going on with the Song of Songs. It's like an album pulling together the greatest collection of songs and then telling a story with those songs. And lastly, there's a big question on how we should interpret it. Like, what do we do when it says, my bride is a garden locked up, and she says, come into the garden, and he says, I will come into the garden and drink from it. What, how do we interpret this? What are we supposed to do? How do we read this book? And there's four primary ways that people throughout history have read the Song of Songs. The first two are similar. It's called the allegorical method of interpretation. What that means is everything in the Song of Songs is an allegory for something else, or it's almost like a metaphor, an extended metaphor. Some see it as an allegory using human relationships to describe God's love for Israel. That's how some Jews interpret it. Christians came along and said, ah, it's about God's love, not for Israel, but for the church. And there are many Christians over the millennia who have read the Song of Songs, and they take allegorical number one, and after the resurrection of Jesus, allegorical number two, to un understand Song of Songs. So some, when reading it, are going to see it as a big allegory. That's all that's going on. More recently, especially as we've discovered these ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian poems as well, it's... It's led more and more scholars to see the natural reading as the most likely interpretation. Well, here's what that means. This is a collection of poems about human love, romance, sex, marriage. And we would expect that in the Bible because it's a, a very significant part of human life. And so we have a, a book dedicated to it right there. The fourth, the typological, is basically a combination of the natural and the allegorical. Here's how it sounds. It's about human, a human relationship. But as you read it, it's almost like no human relationship could ever match these expectations. Thus, we're to conclude that there's a greater love that we all need that we can only find in God. You're going to have to go do some work on how you want to understand it as we go through. We're going to largely be taking the natural and some of the typological as we read the Song of Songs. If you have a study Bible, they're going to walk you through all of this as you do it. Here's where we're going. Tonight, we're going to talk about how we view sex, both in the scriptures and in our culture. Next, we're going to talk about dating. What does it look like to date well? After that, we, we get together at Fellowship Fayetteville for Easter on Sunday morning. The kids, the students, college students, everybody together. And so that'll be Easter morning. We won't have a, a college service that night. Then we're going to talk about beauty. Then we're going to talk about the greater love we all need. Then on May 8th, we'll have a big, giant celebration in here to look back over the year. And that'll be the Sunday before finals for some of you that are in college. So that's where we're going. With that in mind, if you would do me a favor... Would you stand up? And to the person next to you, I want you to simply ask and answer this question. Very easy. Uh, what is the thing, your favorite gift that you received as a child? Go. All right, 10 seconds. Answer quickly.
right, grab a seat. Here we go, here we go. Let's get to work. Here's where we're going tonight. That had nothing to do with the talk at all. Just, you know, intro stuff's kind of boring. Let's get to work here. Here we go. Uh, tonight we're looking at sex in the scriptures versus sex and the culture. What's the vision for sexual intimacy as the Bible lays it out? And then what's the context for that expression of sexual intimacy? And lastly, what, is, what frees us to go experience it to the full? So the vision for sex and sexual intimacy, the context, and then lastly, the freedom. What frees us? Uh, you should already be there in Song of Songs. Notice how the Song of Songs begins. Chapter 1, 2 to 4, it's a, it's a Song of Songs, which is to Solomon or by Solomon or of Solomon. And then it says this, the woman calls out. Now, now it is worth noting, uh, this flies in the face of all ancient cultures. It's very progressive. The woman will actually speak more than the man in the Song of Songs. In all these ancient collections of, uh, of, of romance poems, it's always the man doing the talking. The woman is almost always silent. But here, we see the voice of the woman come to the forefront in the Song of Songs. And so there's just yet one more indication. I hear people say all the time, the Bible is sort of, it's a chauvinistic, it's anti-woman, and we're just gonna have to be more nuanced than that. And so if you're here going, I don't know about that, I've got a question about that, here's an example in the scripture of something that is incredibly honoring to the women who would be hearing and reading this poem. It actually begins with a woman's voice. Look at what she says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like the perfume poured out. No wonder all the other women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Then the, the chorus or the family responds. Now notice their response. I think for many of us, we see something like that. We're in church. This is the Bible after all. We're expecting the chorus's response to be, how dare you? You can't say that. We're Christians. Look at their response. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Now, the Bible's gonna paint an amazing portrait, an amazing picture of what sexual intimacy is designed to be. But before we look at that, let's, let's look at four ways that this, I think, goes wrong in our culture. Not just our broader culture out there, but also what I see oftentimes in here, in the church, and also in my own life. So four ways that we see this go wrong, sexuality gone wrong. The first way is this. Many of us in the room, when we have any kind of series like this, we start talking about sex in church, the first thing that comes to your mind is you see it as disgusting or gross or something to be avoided or something you're not supposed to talk about or something that's filled with shame and sort of darkness. Maybe it, maybe it was the, the church culture you grew up in uh, maybe it was a weird, uh, it's like a weird birds of the bees conversation that you had with mom and dad that made the whole thing seem weird to you. And ever since then, you're like, I don't know about that. Uh, but for a lot of us, we see sex as something to be avoided or gross or disgusting. And it could be not because you had a weird church experience or they, they were overly sensitive to it at your church back home. It could be that for you, you just feel shame when this topic comes up because what comes to your mind is past decisions you've made in relationships where you gave your body away and now you just feel shame for it. Or maybe present realities in the relationship that you're in right now. When we start talking about this in church, you just feel bad, you feel shame. Or maybe you carry into this place when we start talking about a topic like this, just a bombardment of temptation and addiction to pornography and this whole topic just floods you with shame. It might not be decisions that you've made 
that bring that shame. It might be decisions that somebody else has made where somebody hurt you or somebody abused you when you were younger or in a relationship. And so this topic just brings baggage up. Now, just before we move any further, if that's you, if any of those stories I just described are you, can I just speak to you for just a moment? Like our, our pastoral team, we would love to, to listen to your story and to, to hear your story and to, and to lean in with the goodness of the gospel and hope to see healing come to your story. Our team would love to do that. We have a Celebrate Recovery team that meets here on Friday night, every Friday night, and they would love to, to hear your story and help see healing come in to your life. If you carry this sex as disgusting, sex as gross, then you will miss this amazing blessing that God has created for you and for me, for some of us to experience in life. The second is this. I think many of us see not disgusting, but the opposite. Sex is idolized. It's worshiped. It's deified. We see it as a God. We say, if, if I could just if I could just experience sex, if I could just get married, if I could just find that perfect someone that I'll know I matter, I'll know I'm beautiful, I know I measure up. And in that sense, we worship sex to something it was never designed to be. I mean, it's all over our world we see it. I think advertisers have known this for years. Why do they use sex in, advertise, in advertisements? Why is it on billboards? Why, if you go to any big city, just walk down the street, walk in front of almost any store and you're gonna see it. Why? Because it's effective. And ad execs know it. It attracts attention. And they know that one of the best ways to connect with us is to pull on our heartstrings towards romance and sex. They know it works. So they continue to do it. We elevate sex in this context as something to be glorified. It's no wonder that a lot of the people that get so much of the attention on social media is because they're, they're really provocative with what they post. And I'm sure some of you have felt this pressure that you have to post a certain way or look a certain way or show a certain amount of skin to get more and more attention because that's what everybody else is doing. That's who a huge amount of the likes and a huge amount of the follows go. People are, who are provocative online. The pornography industry is a $100 billion a year industry for a reason because this is something that has taken over and become so magnanimous, so grand that it's almost reached a godlike status. It's why, back to the bachelor, it's why when people go on this show that have not had sex, virgins, they're almost always not seen favorably, but they're almost seen like they're this guy, like you are late 20s or early 30s and you haven't had sex yet, something's wrong with you. And that's the narrative that our culture is feeding us. You haven't had sex. Sex is this glorious thing. It may not be sex. I think for many of us in the room, we've glorified, we've made into a God the idea. I know who I'm talking to, especially in the South at a state school like the U of A. There's a narrative that goes like this. If you don't find your spouse by the time you graduate college, if you're not in a serious relationship, then you never will, and you're gonna be, you're gonna die a lonely death. And nobody would say it that dramatically, but I hear it from you. By the way, girls and guys in the room, this pressure that you've gotta find her or you've gotta find him before the end of college or something's wrong with you. Marriage, as good as it is, we have in that sense elevated it to the status of a God. 
And for many of us in the room, and in talking with uh, some of the people in this room early this week, they said it's so easy, even early on in a a relationship, or even just like talking with other, like talking or texting with a a guy or with a girl, to start fantasizing and dreaming about the marriage one day. To, To take sex or marriage and to treasure it. To say, I have to have this or I have nothing. And if I don't have this, then I don't matter and I don't measure up. I'm not significant. I'm not beautiful. To treasure these things, to make them into a God, Jesus would say, we'll give our heart away to it, our body away to it, our loyalty away to it, our time away to it. And when we do, when we take a good thing like marriage, but make it a God thing, it always becomes a bad thing and ends up robbing us of joy. When we take a good thing like sex and elevate it to the God thing, it becomes a bad thing and robs us of joy. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You have to treasure the right treasure. I, I know here's me back in college. Uh, I've showed you this picture. Thanks, Burton. Um, why did you laugh at that like that? Um, back in college. And uh, I was about 35 pounds lighter back then. And uh, so... Let me tell you my, my, my personal story on this. Um, there was a lot of times I would come into a church service and if they were talking about sex, I would, my mind would be filled with shame from decisions I made in my past. And there was also times I'd come in and, and, and the idea of the perfect person were getting married, falling in love. I had elevated that. And now I've shared a story with many of you before. I'm gonna give you one piece of it that I haven't shared before. Um, there was a girl that I thought if I could have, if I could date her, like if she would want me, then I'll know that I'm important. A lot of guys wanted this girl. She was attracted. I thought, man, if she'd give her attention to me, then I'll know that I measure up. And sophomore year of college, sure enough, we had, we had kind of, it didn't work out. Then it kind of was working out. Then it didn't work out. And finally it was going to work out. And here's the part I've never shared this story before. This is one of the most humiliating things in my entire life. Um, when I asked her out, this is humiliating. This guy, when I asked her out, you're going to hate. When I asked her out, in that moment, I said, I love you. <laughs> and it wasn't like I'm falling. Like, you know, I'm falling for, I was like, I love you. Asking her out, just to date. Hey, it worked though, because she started dating me, all right? Right after that. Now think about it. Think of the weight of the expectations that her and I were putting on this relationship. We were asking each other to be the thing that brought us our sense of satisfaction and significance and joy. And it's no wonder that about a year and a half later, the relationship began to unravel under the weight of its own expectations. She was, a, she was a good person, a Jesus follower, but for me to make her into a God that I'm saying, if I have her and if our relationship happens, then now I know I matter. Took a good thing and made it a God thing and it became a bad thing. And she did the same thing with me. And it unraveled because no human could ever take the place of God. We can see sex as disgusting or as a deity, or we can place our identity in it. We've been told a narrative, hear me, We've been told a narrative by our culture that the core of who you are, your identity, is who you're attracted to and who you want to sleep with. And it's found a wide audience in our culture that who you are at your most fundamental is who you sleep with or who you're attracted to. 
Can I just challenge that for just a moment? And just think critically with me for a moment. It's very wide in our culture, that, that perspective. Just think critically with me for a moment. Aren't all of us so much more complicated than that? So much more complex than that? The core identity of who we are is not who our attractions are to. We're so much deeper than that. All of us are. It's a very shallow place to build our identity. And lastly, we can see sex as a solution or the great rescue. I hear this all the time. And one day when, when, I, when I find somebody, when I fall in love, when, when I get married, when I start having sex, my porn problem will go away. Or then I'll know I'm not, I won't be lonely anymore. Or then I'll know that I, I matter. All of these are sexuality gone wrong. And I see them out there and I see them in here and I see them in my life as well. So if these are false visions of sexual intimacy, then what, what is the scripture gonna tell us? The scripture is gonna tell us that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to provide intimacy and connection and oneness within the covenant of marriage. That it, it provides a vulnerability and a nearness and it does so in a way that almost nothing else can. And by the way, it also brings other humans into the world. We call those things babies. It's another reason why it exists. But just look at the Song of Songs. They rejoice and delight. They praise the love of this couple more than wine. Later on, notice the security in this, the confidence in this. She, she exclaims, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a freedom in that. There's a connection in that. There's a confidence in that to be truly vulnerable, truly known, and have the other person reciprocate. You can finally take the mask down and be finally who you are meant to be with this person. In the beginning of the scripture, we see Genesis chapter two. It, it ends by saying Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That used to kind of weird me out, the naked part, but what's the, what's the word picture? The picture is two people who are able to drop the mask, be eye to eye, have intimacy and vulnerability and connection with none of the stain of, of sin that gets in the way. Truly known and yet truly accepted. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York and he says this, to be loved but not known is superficial. Somebody say, I love you, but not really know you. It's superficial. doesn't mean much. To be known, truly known, but not loved, rejected, it's our greatest fear. And to be truly known and truly loved is our deepest desire. And this is the picture of the intimacy that we see in Scripture what sex is designed to do and to be is to, is to bring two people together to both be naked in body and also naked in soul and vulnerable before each other. It's a, in that sense, it's an incredibly powerful and effective tool to enable somebody to truly be known and accepted by this other person. And that's a really compelling vision for sexual intimacy. That's the vision the Bible is casting for us. And we've got to kind of step away from these other visions that oftentimes we hear in the church and outside the church. Now, trust me, that's the long point. These other ones will be really short. As a powerful tool, I'm like, what's its context then? Like, if that's the vision for it, then where is it supposed to be expressed? 
And we're gonna see this refrain over and over and over again in the Song of Songs. It says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That there's a, a right context and then a wrong context. And any expression of this sexual intimacy outside of this particular context will result in cheapening it. It's something it's not meant to be. Now, the scripture is going to be really clear that this context is one man and one woman in covenant marriage for life. Now, if I'm you, here's what I'd be thinking. If I'm sitting where you are, I'm thinking this. All right, great. We spent 15 minutes talking about this amazing vision. And you're saying, I don't get, to, I don't get that, any of that. Because I'm guessing almost none of you are married right now. So if I'm where you're sitting, I'm going, why are we even talking about this? I also hear from our culture, hear this refrain all the time. The Bi- uh, Christians in the Bible, they are so restrictive with their view of sexuality. Like they limit our freedom. The Bible's always coming down hard on us saying who you can sleep with and who you, and who you can love and when you can have sex and how it all works. And it's so many rules. Christians are so legalistic. Why can't they just let us love who we want to love and have sex who we want to have sex? This is outrageous. It's so backwards. It's so archaic. And I, trust me, if you're here and you've got that objection, or you've got friends that have that objection, I hear you. I really do hear you. And it's a, that's a valid thing to feel. To feel. Can I just, can I give a simple response? We looked this morning uh, at John chapter 10. Jesus makes a, a bold claim. He says, I have come that my people might have life and life to the full, life overflowing in joy and blessing. Consider with me for a moment. What if the Bible's design for sex is actually designed to provide the maximum human flourishing. It's designed to create intimacy and connection, the vision we just looked at, and it's beautiful. And what if Jesus and the the, the authors of the scripture know that when we take sex outside of that context, that it inevitably will be cheapened. And now, instead of being vulnerable and truly known, sex is used to keep the other person's attention or sex is used so that I know that I'm beautiful or sex is used so that I can get pleasure or to hope that they stick around in case somebody better comes along. And in that sense, it will do the very opposite of what it was designed to do. I'm gonna give you a challenge. Jesus followers in the room. The Bible is gonna give you a very limited context for sexual expression. It's in the context of marriage because there it flourishes. And what it's gonna say is anything outside of that, hear me, it's not a wet blanket on your fun and it's not a killjoy for your pleasure. That's not God's motive. It's not the Christian's motive. It's that God actually has your joy in mind. If you're here tonight and you're in a relationship or you're considering a relationship, I want to challenge you to fight for that context, to fight hard for that context. I understand it's difficult. I understand the narrative our culture is painting, but to see the vision and fight for it. If you're in this room and you're in relationships, many of you will get into relationships and fight for it. The vision, the context, and last and short, the freedom. 
What do I mean by the freedom for sexual intimacy? What unlocks for us the ability to see this and experience this for all that it's meant to be? Notice, she says, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's a freedom in this, but to get our picture, we're going to have to go to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter five, notice, when in Paul talking about the marriage relationship, he says, wives lovingly respect, submit to your husbands. They might be everything that God has called them to be. And then husbands, love your wives, die to yourself, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul can't help himself. When he wants to talk about the human relationship of marriage, he inevitably will draw his mind to this picture of what we see in the gospel. Now hear me. What sets you and I free to fight for the right context? Here it is. That in Jesus, that in the gospel, the announcement that we are more broken than we could ever imagine and yet more loved and accepted than we could ever dare dream, that in the gospel, everything that we need, we have found already in him. Our affirmation, our beauty, our significance, it's already, be, already been found in him. Think about it. Jesus knows you all the way through your past, your story, your brokenness, your failures, your little quirks, all of it. And yet in, in the gospel, all of our brokenness known, and yet in Jesus, accepted and loved, welcomed in. It's an amazing picture of the connection that we can now have with him. And when we understand the gospel, it sets us free to actually now, whether you end up getting married or not, whether you're in a relationship or not, to have all that we need to be already met in him. This is Sarah and I on our wedding day, almost 13 years ago. Uh, and on our wedding day, I had to learn from that previous relationship. I, it took time. I had to learn that everything that I actually need, I've already, I've already got it in Jesus. That enables me to, to freely love and cherish my wife without making her a God. This is the picture that we're called to as Jesus followers in the room. It's a beautiful picture. Hear me. Jesus knows you all the way, through and through. And yet because of what he's done on the cross, you are welcomed and loved and valued in him. Your sexuality doesn't define you. Your body doesn't define you. Your relationship status doesn't define you. Whether you get married or not doesn't define you. All that you need, you have in him. And that frees you. So what's my challenge for us today? Mostly non-married people in the room. To soak in that good news to let it wash over you every day and to remember that all you have, you have in him. All you could need, you have in him. Now, with that in mind, we're gonna turn now, we're gonna sing. And I know, these, I know this is a bit heavy for us, but I wanna invite you as, when I pray in a minute, when I say amen, just to stand and reflect on this idea. He knows you all the way through, but in Jesus, he welcomes you and loves you. Jesus, we praise your name. We give you glory and honor for what you've accomplished for us. We thank you that for the amazing picture of what sexual intimacy is designed to be in Scripture and for the whole host of ways that I failed to trust you and still do. Lord, I confess that to you. Help me to remember, even tonight, 
everything I need has been met in you. That you're the lover of our souls, the one who sets us free, that enables us to now be defined how we truly need to be, sons and daughters of the Most High. So now we turn to reflect on your love and grace towards us, and we sing. Would you stand and let's sing?
Trust that the King, who's been risen and exalted, 
has our joy in mind. He's come that we would have life and life to the full, life abundant in him. We trust him. Fellowship College, we love you. We're going to be in this series for the next few weeks. Let's leave here tonight and we'll trust he's got the life abundant for us. We love you. Have a great week. See y'all next week, everybody.